This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's Daily Politics Podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Katie Balls. Well, Cabinet often leaks, but today we have had a pre-briefing of what Boris Johnson was going to say at Cabinet just to make sure that we all got the message. James, what is the message that he wants us to know about? So the, the message is that he's told the Cabinet to kind of come up with ways to help ease the cost of living crisis, to show the government is doing what it can. The catch is he's told them to come up with non-fiscal ways, so e.g. ways that don't cost any money. Because they're having their own cost of living crisis within Whitehall. Exactly. Now, there are some things you can do. So, for example, you can cut tariffs on food. At the moment, the government is sticking to cutting tariffs on food that the UK doesn't produce itself. So think of things like rice, which obviously the climate here is is not suited to growing. More controversial, which David Frost, the former Brexit uh, Opportunities Minister, has called for, would be for the UK to start cutting tariffs on the food it itself produces in an attempt to lower prices. They're not yet prepared to, to, to go that far. And, and so I think, the, I think you see here the government trying to say, look, we are trying to help, we're trying to do things. I think the problem, when you talk to people in government about this, is that, you know, yes, you can reduce the cost of reapplying for a driving licence or things like that, but that that is not really what is causing people to feel concerned about their finances. It's what's happening to energy bills, where the government has spent £9 billion, but people are still really concerned because the increase is so sizable. So I think I mean, what we see here is the government is trying to address this problem, but, but there are there, there are kind of limits given that the two things going up in that are driving this current bout of inflation are energy prices and food prices. The two items of spending which are least discretionary, you know, people have to use energy and eat. And that 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 is I think why this is so politically difficult for the government. Katie, it underlines the powerlessness of the government. Is is that a good thing ultimately for the public to, to learn that so that they're not still crossed by the next election? Or do, 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 do the public work that way? Yeah, I mean, it can underlie the, power, the powerlessness of the government. I think what they're trying to do is show that the government is not apathetic to this. And while lots of people worry about it, the government is trying to do certain things. But as you say, when you come up with various ideas that might have a small impact it is going to suggest that you know it's small fry compared to what lots of people are dealing with I think you go back to the pandemic and the sense that lots of people in the country have seen the government step in when it wanted to step in to actually support you know pay for people's wages when they couldn't work and I think we are going through a tricky period where expectations on the government are so high and therefore I wonder actually you know if you think about the various issues facing the economy Boris Johnson is not someone who wants to deliver bad news. So instead it's, you know, we're working on this meeting. We're going to, you know, get over the heads in a room. And it seems to be once again raising expectations. So on one hand, I can see why they want to do it and why they perhaps are pre-briefing this important statement at a meeting to say, look, it's the number one voter concern issue. And it's the number one issue for my government. Forget parties are going to talk about this. But I do wonder if actually part of the reason the spring statement misfired is because the government does need to have a conversation with the public about some of the hard truths on this so 
if it is the case that the government is so worried about stagflation that they don't think they can pump much more money into the economy, that things that people want to see um, in terms of spending to ease incomes, perhaps increases to benefits, the fact that most people in the public sector are going to face below inflation pay rises, and probably a lot of people in the private sector too, has there been enough to articulate why the government, A, perhaps on a political ground, but two, in terms of the economic argument you hear ministers make privately, which is by doing that, you're going to drag on inflation, you're going to uh, make the problem worse. Has it been enough to do that? And I would say probably not. I, I don't think that that is something which is uh, in the consciousness. And I think if you just, if you have the, the serious conversations that you perhaps are having in private, I think that you should almost, you know, give the public enough credit to have them to voters uh, and then see what the response is. Because we had um, Chris Curtis, the pollster, on this podcast a, a few weeks ago. And and he was making the point that the strange thing is when it comes to you know the downfall of Rishi Sunak, you look at his sliding popularity is when he's doing focus groups and polling, actually there is a sense that there was lots of money spent during the pandemic and that cannot be kept and the economy is in a tricky state. But yet there's some disconnect happening. And obviously we can say it's about flashing money, we can say it's about what they choose to spend money on, so forth, lots of ideas. But it's strange in a way that there is such a disconnect. There's always going to be some unhappiness when that is opposed to saying they're hearing very similar things to some of the things that figures in the Treasury are saying. And I do wonder if part of that is down to the lack of public messaging on it. Now, James, we're obviously not going to be briefed directly on any arguments that actually happened in Cabinet following the pre-briefed words from Boris Johnson. But how supportive are the Cabinet generally of Boris Johnson position and Rishi Sunak's position which aren't as, as we've discussed necessarily always in sync. I think there is a divide in the cabinet. I think some people take the view that Katie was just outlining that you know you can't afford to spend more money right now. What happens if interest rates go up and you know the Tory party has got itself into some of the difficulties it's currently in by spending too much so it had to raise taxes. Then there are other people who say look you've just got to this is a kind of you've got to get through this crisis and they would argue that, you know, the public saw how the government essentially made all the problems, in economic problems, go away during COVID. And so, you know, what's your justification for not doing so now? Because, you know, the argument during COVID was that, you know, the government will step in to help because this is some external shock, which is nothing to do with the underlying economy. You know, you can argue that this rise in energy prices is, you know, it, it, this is imported inflation. This isn't something that is happening in the UK economy. Now, I think the difficulty there is that, we are probably entering into a structural era of higher energy prices. You know, the mere fact that, that China is basically trying to move from coal to gas means that gas prices are going to be higher than they otherwise would have been. So I, I think there is there, there is a, there is a strong case on the on the former, but I think politically the problem for the government is that people look and see how the government made all these problems go away during COVID and, and took the credit for it. And they now say, well, why won't you do the same again? Now, Katie, one person who is not having a cost of living crisis is Elon Musk, who has bought Twitter for $44 billion. Katie, he describes himself as a free speech absolutist. We have the government's online harms bill being debated at the moment, and that has major implications for social media giants. So this is quite a an upset in the the landscape of social media and the political landscape, isn't it? Yes, I mean, I think it, it clearly shakes things up and you have a situation where, as you say, online 
safety bill has now passed second reading. There are some Tory MPs who have long raised freedom of speech issues. They've also been raised in The Spectator in terms of what power does it give to online giants. And those who support the bill will say that what it's effectively doing is bringing in is, is offering some regulation and without this things would be you know a bigger wild west of the internet but then the counter to that is doesn't mean that you're going to have a situation where online giants feel as though they have a duty on them because otherwise they could face you know a difficulty from the government uh, in terms of being wrong with this to to over censor so what does elon Musk do in all this i think it's clearly interesting having someone who is such a, a free speech advocate coming out and also it has the potential to perhaps raise some of the divides in cabinet on this issue because Nadine Doris has been very defensive of her bill as you would expect saying that this is you know much needed uh, and actually that if you look at some of the problems online in terms of Instagram, self-harm, or all these things, this is going to play a really important role. But because part of it is addressing harms, a section which is, you know, legal but harmful, there's this big grey area, which is you can say, and obviously there's attempts to do this, what the bill is... Um, you know, what is harmful, but the worry is that it could be a slippery slope. I mean, for example, Nadim Zahori retweeted Elon Musk last night when he won this very, um, you know, his yes tweet. So I do wonder if we're, if we're going to see perhaps a reopening in terms of where the party sits, because it's in quite a confused position a lot of the time on whether it wants to be the champion of free speech or actually wants to uh, put itself forward as, as the, the safeguarding price, which is going to actually tackle lots of the potential issues and there's a lot of grey between the two. I heard a commentator saying that if uh, Twitter turned into the way uh, Elon Musk behaves on Twitter then it would be a very unhappy place which made me wonder whether that person had ever been on Twitter as it is currently but James is the the problem with the online harms bill actually that the the Conservatives are quite in favour of free speech as long as it's not mean about them? Yeah I I mean that that, that is an issue I mean there's a fascinating question right which is what the online harms bill requires companies such as Twitter to do is to kind of issue a statement about how they intend to deal with this problem. Now, we know that Elon Musk's view is that Twitter should basically allow everything which is legal within the country in which it operates. So, it's an interesting question. What would the government do if, when Twitter asked to explain what its policy is on suicide, for example, right, just writes, we intend to apply the law of the land, full stop. If every if his answer to every single online harm was, we intend to apply the law of the land, full stop, what does the government then do? It's obviously not the government obviously wants a statement to go further than that in terms of what your activities will be. But I think it does raise a potential clash there. I also think that we are, there is also an interesting tension here, which is that you see that Musk, I think, has a very, you know, he's a big supporter of the American Civil Liberties Union. He has a very First Amendment view of free speech. That is not the legal position on free speech within the UK. I mean, that, that is an interesting question. I mean, the other question is that, you know, Jeff Bezos, who owns, you know, the, the Amazon uh, founder who owns the Washington Post, which is his own a bit of media influence, you know, he has been um, yanking Elon Musk's chain saying, well, what happens about China, you know, you've got all these business interests in China with Tesla. How are you, you know, how are you going to deal with the fact if a Chinese government try and pressure you about things that are said on Twitter about Xinjiang or Hong Kong or the like? I think this certainly is going to make Twitter 
even you can argue that the, the, the political class in this country is far too obsessed with Twitter as it is, and there is some truth in David Cameron's view that too many tweets make up, you know. But I think that Twitter is going to become and this 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 question of where the line is on free speech, and the question of who has influence or not, it is going to become a political hot potato in in the coming years. And I mean, there is also an interesting question here, which is you know, I think a lot of people would be slightly surprised that Boris Johnson, who is an in Distinctive libertarian, and who in his journalism certainly kind of pushed the boundaries on the on the on the on the free speech front. You know, how comfortable is he really with the online harms bill? If it starts causing huge arguments, if this becomes a big controversy, you know, where is his view on the line of where speech ends? I suspect it might be in a slightly different place than Nadine Doris's. Thank you, James. Thank you, Katie, and thank you for listening. <laughs> 